Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. A couple days, these last few weeks, because if I'm honest, joy and happiness, rejoicing in the Lord have been elusive. They've seemed to slip my grasp. Don't get me wrong, I want to rejoice in the Lord. I want to be glad in Him. I want to take my delight in Him. But I've been asking myself, why is joy so hard to find? Maybe I'm the only one in the room who's felt that way. Perhaps joy and gladness are your closest companions. Stress and anxiety are all but forgotten strangers. Maybe. Or maybe we all know what it feels like to be overwhelmed at times. When stress and sadness come knocking, the sound is all too familiar. But that's not God's joy, or that's not God's vision for our life. When the car breaks down, when the kids get sick, when the doctor's report is devastating, when the choice is too hard or the pain won't leave, his joy, his vision is still joy for our lives. So it begs the question, how do we live a blessed life? A life with God that's filled with happiness, joy, gladness, delight, rejoicing. Some search for it in money and possessions. Some follow the mantra, you do you, and chase their dreams all the way to the end. The disciples argued over authority and power. That's the way to the blessed life. You know what? I'm greater than you. I'll defend it. I've got reasons why. But today, we're going to read from John 13, and we'll see that the abundant life, the blessed life, the happy life is not found in power or prominence or possession, it's found in following Jesus' way of love by engaging humble service. That's what leads to the blessed life. We'll find that bent knees and dirty towel is where blessings begin to flow. Turn with me to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm going to take a moment to pray. Father, as we uh, enter this text, I pray that your spirit would go with me. If you don't go, I don't want to go. I pray that you would prepare our hearts, whether proclaiming or receiving, God, that your word would do its work, that it would not return void, that your spirit would be active and living among us. Amen. So it was just before the Passover, that celebration where families would gather together, eat a lamb, and spread door on the blood on the doorpost. They were celebrating when God delivered them from Egypt. You see, there was a plague that was going to go through Egypt. God warned his people, put blood on the doorpost, and if you put blood on the doorpost, I will pass over your firstborn. 
So the Israelites did this, but the Egyptians didn't, and God's plague came through. Every firstborn, man and animal, were wiped out. The Egyptians left Egypt with plunder in hand. God had delivered his people. God had rescued them. It's with this as the backdrop for our text that we remember what John has said earlier in this book. John the Baptist points at Jesus and he says, Look, behold him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God had delivered his people through the death of a lamb. And now he would deliver the world from their sin through the death of another lamb, the Lamb of God. Jesus was well aware of this fact. He knew his hour had come. He knew it was time for the Son of Man to be glorified and for the Father to glorify his name. He knew his hour had come to die like a seed planted in the ground, a seed that would come to bear much fruit. He knew that his hour had come to leave the world through the cross, through death, resurrection, and ascension back to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, God loved his own in a special way. To be sure, God loved the world. John's gospel, if any gospel at all, trumpets this loudly and clearly. There's that famous verse, John 3.16, where God goes to great lengths to save his world and show his love. God loves the world, but he loves his own in a special way. He loved his own to the end, to the utmost, and to the last moment, to the fullest extent, and to the last second. So our context for the foot washing is set. Jesus will demonstrate his love with full knowledge that his time left on earth is short. He's preparing the twelve to take on the mission of telling the good news to the whole world. He's preparing the twelve for a life after Jesus is on earth. How would he do it? The stakes are high. He would do it by beginning to call his own, to follow his way of love through humble service, for their joy, others' benefit, and his glory. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Just picture that room with me for a moment. The disciples are having this feast in the upper room. It's probably lively with celebration. And Jesus just gets up and goes to the corner of the room. And the disciples are interested in what Jesus is doing. He's their rabbi. He's their teacher. He's their Lord. So a few of them take notice. He starts to put on the garb of a slave. Some of them are confused and, and start nudging the disciples next to them. Hey, what is he doing? Jesus continues. He goes, to, goes over to the other side of the room and he, he gathers some water and a basin. 
Now the room begins to go from celebration to silence. Hey, that, that, that basin looks familiar. I don't think he's making salad. I'm pretty sure that's the foot washing bowl. What is he doing? What is he doing? And to their surprise, he keeps going. He doesn't stop there. He brings the basin over. And he goes around the circle. He pours water over their feet. He catches the water in the basin. He, he kneels down, and with the towel wrapped around his waist, he dries their feet. And the offense of God's love begins to crack and melt every hard shell of the disciples in the room. I love John's telling of this story. He only gives us a few details, but they're very revealing. You see, he says the meal had already started, for it was in progress. The foot washing should have already happened by now. If you recall, when Jesus enters the Pharisee's house, he says, do you see this woman? She wet my feet with her tears. She dried my feet with her hair. You offered me no water for my feet. It was an offense that, they weren't, that he wasn't offered this hospitality the moment he entered their house. This hospitality should have been offered the moment they entered the upper room. They had dirty feet and they sat down to eat, but there was no slave, so they weren't about to wash one another's feet. See, it's hard for me to convince you that I'm better than you if I'm bowing before you, washing your feet. And to the disciples' defense, you know, it, it, it makes sense. In the ancient world, foot washing went something like children wash their mom and dad's feet. Slaves wash their master's feet. Maybe a generous woman would wash the feet of her, of her guests, showing hospitality. But, but people on the same plane, no way. In fact, the Jewish people had agreed that not even a Jewish slave could be asked to do this. This was for the lowest Gentile slave. So it makes sense the disciples in their honor and shame culture didn't want to bow down and wash their feet. It makes sense that they, they passed. John gives us another detail. The devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. I love that he included this because it tells us Judas was there. He washed everyone's feet. He practiced enemy love. He didn't just teach it in some theoretical sermon on the mount. He now enacted it in human flesh. He looked the man who he knew full well would betray him that night. Later in this chapter, he said, one of you will betray me. He had full knowledge. But he looked him in the eyes. He bent down and he washed his feet all the same. And this, this service wasn't, it wasn't for show. It was personal. It's hard to wash someone's feet from across the room. It was necessary. The need of the hour. He had smelly feet. 
He needed it done. It was humble. Jesus was his superior, his rabbi, his lord, his master. But Jesus places himself under even his enemies and shows him this love. What makes it all the more shocking is that Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. Think about that. All things, not some things, not most things, all things were under his power. We're talking about the God who can bring into being things which were not. The one who said, let there be light, and light obeyed. He told a dead man, get up and walk, and he listened. He came riding on a donkey, king of Israel. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's the commander of angel armies and legions. And he served. He served the twelve. He served his enemies. And in doing so, he set an example of the blessed life. He set an example of a life of love expressed through humble service. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said not everyone was clean. So again, go back to picturing it. Jesus is going from disciple to disciple, from a room that was celebrating to a room that is now hushed. He gets around the table, not a table like we think of today, but um, a low table. They would have been reclining on, like, Pillows are a low couch. If you know what the nugget is, that's kind of what I picture. Um, they're on their left, hand, left arm, typically eating with their right, and their feet are away from, from the central table where the food is. So he's going around the circle, and finally he gets to Peter. And Peter's not very comfortable with silence from the accounts we read. And he just won't stand for it. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You're the Lord, I'm the disciple. Rabbis aren't even supposed to ask Jewish disciples to do service related to the feet. And now, you're not even going there. You're, you're just flipping the whole table and you're saying, now rabbis are washing disciples' feet? No. That's not going to work for me. Are you going to wash my feet? It's reminiscent of another follower of Jesus, John the Baptist. You want me to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. You're coming to me? But Jesus begins to break the categories of those who follow him. He does something they don't understand. He assures Peter, you know what, later you're going to get this. It's going to make sense. After these things, after the cross, 
you're going to look back on this and you're going to know what I'm doing. I know you don't get it right now, but you will. That doesn't work. Lord, you're never, not ever going to wash my feet. Peter now tells his Lord what to do. That's not going to work. I'm going to put my foot down. Thanks. I heard Will. Are you going to wash my feet? No. I think Peter's intentions were great. I think he wanted to honor his Lord. And in honor and shame culture, he was like, Lord, you are putting yourself under me. This doesn't make sense. I want to worship you. Jesus makes himself clear. Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Those words seem pretty harsh. What do you mean? You're, you're making you washing my feet a condition of our relationship? But Jesus is no longer speaking only about the washing of feet. The washing of feet becomes a metaphor for something else. It's kind of like the running metaphor of John 10 and the Good Shepherd. The foot washing means something. Peter, if you're not washed from your sin, you have no part to me. If you're not washed, if you're not made clean, you have no part with me. I find that often the words of Jesus that sound harsh upon first glance are really good news. They're really good news. The condition of my relationship with Jesus is that his service makes me clean. To be sure, I have to repent. I have to believe. I have to trust Jesus with all that I am, but it's his work, not mine, that makes me clean. Jesus goes on to explain the metaphor even further. Mark's account of why Jesus came also shed some light. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The way he would serve was by giving his life. The way he would love his own to the end was by giving his life. There was no greater love than this. Unless the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world washes you, you have no part with Jesus. But if Peter is not one thing, if he's only one thing, it's this. He is zealous for Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He says, fine, Jesus, if, if, if you washing my feet, he still doesn't understand. If you washing my feet is how I can be with you, then not just my feet, but all of me. My hands and my head, wash me clean. Peter, or not Peter, Jesus explains, because as one commentator said, actions may speak louder than words, but explanations help. Explanations help. So he tells us, Peter, you've already taken a bath. You if you've taken a bath already, you don't need another one. You just need to wash your feet. You took a bath at home, you walked on dusty roads, the only thing that's dirty is your feet. So let me wash your feet. 
Now the metaphor shifts. To be justified, to be made right in God's sight, is to take a bath. Peter has already taken a bath. Because of the word Jesus has spoken to him, Peter has been made clean. But nonetheless, Jesus tells him, you still need, you still need your feet washed. You still need the sanctifying washing, the sanctifying forgiveness of sin. That's why he taught us, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And if we're asking for daily bread, in the line right before that, we're asking for daily forgiveness of sin. John helps us understand in his first letter, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. So he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The bath is justification. The foot washing is sanctification. He's cleansing us. We've been saved, but as we walk through the world, our feet get dusty and we need cleansed again. It's a different cleansing. It's not, we don't need another bath, but we do need our feet washed. So the point is eternal relationship with Jesus and joy in his presence are found in receiving his love expressed through humble service. Not just in a foot washing, but humble service on the cross. You see, Judas, he would not experience this. He was the one Jesus was referring to when he said, now all of you are clean. Judas would soon betray his master. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. When he finishes washing their feet, he asks a pretty peculiar question. Do you understand these things? He just told Peter in the room where all of the disciples clearly heard him, you won't understand this. Not yet, not in its fullness, not until after these things happen. Not until I go to the cross. But after, you'll think back and you'll know what I meant. He develops his teaching and he says who he is who the disciples know him to be. He is teacher and Lord, Lord and teacher. It's from that station that he humbled himself. It's from that station as Lord and teacher that he set an example of love through humble service. It's from that station that he now commands his disciples to follow him in this way. He argued from the maxim, no servant is greater than his master. Listen, guys, if I got down on my knees, if I wash the dirt off your smelly feet, you have no excuse. I'm your rabbi, I'm your teacher, I'm your Lord. If I did it, you have no excuse. The one who is sent is not greater than the one who sends them. If I'm sending you out as my representative to represent me, you must do what I do. 
They have no excuse. It's as if Jesus is saying, rejoice. Hey, I'm going to say it again. I want you to get this, rejoice. Hey, I know I just said it. I asked a question to draw you in. I gave you this illustration of foot washing. I told you that's why I came. I set an example for you. Called, my, called all of your attention to that example. I gave you a logical reason. And now I'm going to tie it to a blessing. If you do these things, if you know these things and you do them, you will be blessed. Hey guys, I don't want you to miss this. Here's six, seven, eight reasons why. Pay attention. The blessed life is found in following me. Follow my way of love through humble service. I don't think he wants us to miss this. And to be clear, following him does not mean we start performing foot washing ceremonies. I don't think there's anything wrong with a foot washing ceremony. But he wants us to engage in necessary, practical, humble, other honoring acts of service. If their feet are dirty, if that's the need of the hour, wash them. But the need of the hour probably looks different in today's world. The need of the hour probably looks different in the 21st century. What a joyful word, though. You will be blessed if you do these things. You'll be blessed if you follow Jesus' way of love through necessary personal and humble service. I don't think he wanted the 12 to miss this, and I don't think John wanted the later generations to miss it. I think it's fair to say that the New Testament authors got it. Paul in Philippians 2 writes, Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. To the Colossians, he said, serve one another humbly in love. How about James? Be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens but does not do what it says is like a man who looks in the mirror and immediately walks away and forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks intently into the law that brings freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they would be blessed in what they do. How about Peter? The guy who really didn't get it, the guy who protested not once, but twice. The end of all things is near. To be sober-minded and pray. Above all, above all, Love one another deeply. Practice hospitality without grumbling. Serve one another. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, perhaps as my messenger, they should do so as speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, perhaps as my servant, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.
He didn't want the 12 to miss it, and he doesn't want us to miss it either. This is so important to the heart of God. He said it over and over and in many different ways through many different people. He didn't want us to miss this. But don't let this commandment become burdensome. It's not what his commandments are. How can we follow Jesus into his way of love through humble service? How can we do it? We let him wash us. We let him cleanse us. Day after day until our desires become his. We let his love toward us find its telos, find its end in loving those next to us. We trust his spirit to empower us and provide the strength so that we may serve those next to us. We trust the blessing is waiting. We trust the gift of God to motivate us until we find ourselves with bent knees and dirty towels. And we find ourselves rejoicing in the Lord. Once again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Father in heaven, you are good, and your ways are good. We love you, and we love your ways. Thank you for the Beatitudes that Jim read this morning, and the Beatitude of John here that points us to following your way of love, your way of humble service. God, we want the happiness that comes from serving others, but may we do it out of the overflow of love that you have given us. God, I pray that we would not miss it, that you would make it stick, that we would fight over dirty diapers, not because we don't want to do it, but because we can't wait to serve our child. Whatever the equivalent of feet washing in our lives is, God, help us to see it and fulfill the need of the hour. God, we love you. Help us to do this. Give us the strength. In Jesus' name, amen.